So I thought I'd do something a little bit different today. For those of you who were present either online or here at the center for uh, to ring in the new year with Ayas and Tusika, we had a beautiful ceremony uh, at the end of that where she had written out some short paragraphs, some were just one or two lines of suttas. And we walked a labyrinth that was all lit in candles at midnight or just before midnight. And in the middle, we stopped and there was this Buddha statue on a little altar there. We stopped and reached into this little bowl here and picked out a piece of paper to, then we read it to ourselves and we take that as our, um, what we're going to bring into the new year as far as our practice goes, see if we can develop this. And so that was really um, quite lovely. So I thought I'd just do that today instead of coming up with some kind of theme, I'll, I'll see what spontaneous subject comes up. I'm going to <laughs> give myself a little bit of leeway and then I'm going to pick out two <laughs> and see if one of the, which one resonates most with me and, and uh, which one I want to go with. So um, bear with me. I'm going to give this a try. So first one will be I should probably close my, well, just, here's number one. I'm going to close my eyes because I purposely looked for a thin one. <laughs> There's some that are really thick. <laughs> so if I'm going to be really spontaneous, I can't see what I'm picking. And this one. Oh, good, it's thin. <laughs> so I will just read these and I will read out loud one of them. This is a serious practice. I might possibly do both. <laughs> the first one is, I will be one who has good friends, good companions, good comrades. That definitely is one of the reasons I even founded Portland Friends of the Dhamma so that I could practice with people who practice in the same way um, that was taught, expressed, encouraged at Abhayagiri Monastery. So Lumpur Pasano is the uh, inspiration of Portland Friends of the Dhamma, and he continues to be a very strong presence and inspiration and so gathering people together um, under this inspiration is really good for my heart. Let's, let's set this other one down for the moment. We'll set both down. 
Um, I went through a training for three and a half years with Lumpur Basno and Ajahn Amra when they were co-abbots of Abayagiri. This was, we graduated in 2004. So 2000, it, it actually started, the first six months were an introduction and then it was three and a half. So it was actually four years, but it actually started in 2000, right after the 9-11 uh, incident. But it was designed as a master's in divinity. And there were 12 of us. There's 11 of us now. One has passed away. And I was in conversation with one of my, we're called CALM, which is Community of Abayagari Lay Ministers. And I was in conversation um, on the telephone with one of my uh, CALM buddies, Kalyana Mitas, who is now um, aging and death is approaching. Uh, how long she has, nobody really knows, but she's definitely um, declining in her, her lifespan is declining. And so I was on the phone with her and it was really touching in that she's completely aware. She, she can cognize that she has absolutely no short-term memory anymore. And she's very clear and very present. So she also doesn't have Alzheimer's. But she has no short-term memory. And she can laugh about this. What she really appreciates, though, is all the years of study and Kalyana being surrounded by good companions, good teachers, good companions, good teachings of the Buddha. She's so grateful as she enters the sunset years of her life, year maybe of her life. She's so grateful that she can remember the work that we've done together, that she's done, that our teachers have pointed out to us and encouraged. She's so grateful that her mind can go to the good. You know, she is companioned in her mind by good practice, by good memories, by uh, you know, freedom from a, a mind that just runs amok. amok. It's just, it, it was just really heartening for me. It was really encouraging and inspiring to recognize the value of the uh, opportunity that we had together to, for all these years, be able to come together and chat about how is it going? What's your struggle? And be really honest with each other about our struggles. It's not always pretty. You know, we are human and we, we do some pretty stupid things sometimes and we suffer for it. And we have Kalyanamitas to share with that, oh, I fell on my face and I really bumped my nose, <laughs> you know, with our actions or our thoughts or our, you know, our um, lack of discipline or whatever it is. 
we could really be who we truly were and stumble along the way together and hopefully not trip each other up. But sometimes when we stumble, we can trip somebody else up. But we stand up and we pick each other up. And, and this is one of the beauties of having a sangha and having the presence um, of each other's physical being. You know, we, we are so fortunate to have a system now where we can always Zoom. We will continue to Zoom. And we're fortunate to have a system set up where we can have people present. Uh, the Zoom is wonderful, and the presence of people is another value. You know, it's um, the energy uh, that we can get off of each other is, is physical. It's, you know, it's really beneficial. You can see the delight. You know, you can really pass, transmit energy from each other. So it's, it's, it's uh, something I look forward to as we go along in this uh, hopefully declining COVID pandemic era of time. Another way of recognizing the value of good companions, good friendship, and, and this showed up with my um, dear friend Medica is what goes on in our mind. What are we companioned with in our own mind, in our own heart? You know, be, because of this training, because of our uh, commitment to goodness. So what came up in my mind was, I have a, one of my challenges uh, my habits, my karma is a, a propensity, a proclivity toward exaggeration. And this is something I've been working on since the beginning of my training. <laughs> it became really obvious to me as I entered into this ministry training, uh, how often I exaggerated for the sake of a joke, for the sake of laughter, for sake of having fun with somebody or for the sake of looking good uh, or downplaying something that didn't look so good or wasn't so, you know, I was trying to hide and exaggerating the uh, kind of shoving off the evidence or whatever. So, so, and I started to think, well, why, why do I, exaggerate isn't the truth good enough and so i took on for actually a couple of years to highlight when i exaggerated the truth is good enough and then over the years that changed to it's not that the truth is good enough the truth is good anything else is not good so which was a real shift for me you know it's like so that's a so my companion, my internal companion, my internal, which we are companioned by our habits, by our habitual way of thinking, our habitual way of reacting, our habitual intent 
to deceive <laughs> in this case. You know, that, that was my companion. And as we recognize internally and practice internally, recognize our internal companions, our habits, they too, if we're walking the path, if we're doing the practice right, they too will mature. So a very strong habit of exaggeration, whether it be toward the positive or toward the negative, you know, exaggeration changed from don't need to do that because the truth is good enough to don't need to do that because it's not good. The truth is good. And that was, you know, that was like a little light bulb for me. So, so then that just, it was a, it put into relief the harm that uh, the obstacle toward the good that the habit of exaggeration was providing for me, it was an obstacle toward the good. So I'll go ahead and read this other one. I don't know if I'll have anything to say now about this. This one is, there are forms cognizable by the eye, sounds, ear, odors, nose, taste, tongue, tangibles, body, and thoughts, mind, that are agreeable and those that are disagreeable. I will train so these do not persist obsessing my mind, even when they are repeatedly experienced. Like this is interesting because I feel like it plays into what I'm actually working with um, presently in my practice is recognizing emotions, how an emotion is not descriptive of reality out here. It's not descriptive, it's a descriptive of my experience, but it doesn't actually describe a circumstance or a situation. What it describes is again, my habitual way of responding to sense inputs, something that's impacting my senses. So again, it's a, it's a habit. Um, and I can recognize when it's a pleasant habit or a unpleasant habit, a unpleasant habitual way of responding to whatever information um, I'm taking. And I can decide how to move forward while experiencing this emotion but not dependent on my reaction because of the emotion. So whether it's good or bad, doesn't mean I go for it or I reject it, but I stay present with it and decide despite or just not because of what I'm feeling, but what I'm witnessing and seeing and understand is the good path. The eightfold path comes in very, very handy here. Respond according to the eightfold path, 
knowing I'm influenced by my feelings, but I'm not hindered. I'm not hobbled. My reactions are not hobbled. My reactions, if anything, are hobbled by the Eightfold Path. This is the wise way. Until I can see clearly the natural, uh, the truth of how the Eightfold Path responds wisely, helps me respond wisely to the world. Whereas my emotions don't necessarily help me respond wisely to the world. You know, I can get very upset with political situations. And if I responded to the world based on my anger and disgust at some political politician, I could do some pretty crazy things, you know. Um, just to give a story, I'm wondering if I tell, I remember when I was <laughs> first getting a divorce, three children <laughs> getting a divorce. It was a very difficult time, very, very painful time in my life. And I was obsessively angry at my uh, ex. It was, it was not a pretty picture. It was not a pretty divorce. And um, I kept coming up with a picture in my mind over and over again of him, thank you very much, coming to my door. So now we're divorced. And uh, I, I, would, I would imagine him coming to my door. And, I, and I, I felt hopeless about being able to direct my mind. I had no idea how to do this. Or I didn't know it was possible you could direct your mind. But I would have this image of him coming to my door, and I'd open it up, and I would throw up on him. <laughs> and, so, and I would feel incredibly satisfied. And then I'd slam the door in his face. And this image came up with all these feelings as well, over and over and over again. But I knew that was not going to lead me into a good result, you know, and I, but I was really overcome. This went on for years, literally. I bet it happened for like 10 years. I was that I held, I was angry at him for a long time. <laughs> oh, I might be exaggerating. <laughs> Thank you, Alistair. My, my new husband, <laughs> or my second husband, not new, 30 years now. <laughs> but anyway, okay, it was probably more like five years. <laughs> but it, it would come up and it was, um, it's just, it's interesting how it was, it had nothing to do with the reality of the situation. I'm, you know, I'm not going to open the door and actually throw up or spit on him. It was another image. It was either be throw up or spit, <laughs> which whichever one I could stimulate <laughs> quickest, you know, and that I just, I knew that was not going to kind of turn out well, but you know, that's what we do. We often follow our emotions as as an indication of how, how we should respond to the world. And our emotions, yes, they are telling, and, and 
they will come up according to the good and the bad and the neutral that we that come at our senses, the pleasant smells, the unpleasant smells, you know, but they don't describe the truth of how we should respond according to Dhamma, according to the reality of the situation, which is in line with the Noble Eightfold Path. You know, we want to take that path into consideration. So Buddha set that up. As far as I understand this, the Buddha set this up for us who are practicing to be free from our greeds, angers, and desires, our greeds, <laughs> angers, and delusions. He set this path up until, because it's in line with those who are free. And so we practice with a full path because it puts us in line with the, with the reality of Dhamma. It puts us in line. This becomes habitual, and we start to feel the fruits of acting according to the truth of Dhamma, even though we don't clearly understand it. But we start to feel the fruits of it because our actions are putting us in line. And our actions are going to have a reverberate. We're going to have a reaction, a response, a result of our actions. And just because we don't see clearly doesn't mean we can't do it. We might not see that the ice on top of the very cold uh, lake, we might not be able to see if it's solid and we can walk on it or not. But say, but somebody who can read ice can see, oh yeah, we can step on it, it's okay. Just walk carefully and we can get to the other side. But we, we, we have to have, we wanna be able to trust and we can trust the Buddha. We can trust the path that he's laid down for us. This will get us to the other side. This will get us to be able to use wisdom instead of habitual responses. Because our habitual responses, unless we're enlightened, they're gonna come from past experiences of greed and hatred and delusion.